Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. The way that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the way that the high holidays or days of awe are often constructed, can feel very hierarchical. We are the petitioners, we're the supplicants, we're asking for so many things. We're asking for a new year ahead, a better year, especially this year, we hope, a better year ahead. Um, We're coming before the divine, we're asking for forgiveness. Perhaps we're focused on mistakes that we've made interpersonally, people that we've hurt, relationships that we take responsibility for damaging. The focus can be sometimes on things that we've done wrong and how we can make those things right. And all of that may be true, but we all know that real life is a lot more complicated than that. And the need to forgive is actually one that goes in multiple connections simultaneously. Multiple directions, multiple connections, a network, a web of interwoven relationships, and each one hinges on the other. So you may need to be forgiven by someone. You may feel that that's a request you're making of a higher power or something that you want to ask someone else for. But we're also all, I would venture to say, all at some point in the position of being the forgiver, being the one to grant forgiveness. And sometimes it's not even clear along those lines, uh, the forgiver, the one who needs forgiveness, you might have a sense that there is something wrong with a relationship. You know that something has been damaged and you feel simultaneously sorry and also defensive. Did I do it? Did they do it? Do I need to apologize? Do they need to apologize? Maybe we both need to apologize. And so for the the mindset for this class, for this time that we're going to spend together, instead of asking you to think about something that you've done wrong this year or someone that you have wronged, I'm asking you to consider whether there's anyone who has apologized to you this high holiday season, or whether there is someone who you think should apologize to you or might apologize to you or you would hope that they would apologize to you. And think about what went wrong, what it might take for you to forgive that person. Do you want to forgive them? What would it feel like to forgive them? And leaving aside who did what wrong, what is it about your personality, about your where your soul is at right now, I would say, if that's not too big a concept, but where where you're holding in life, what is it about you that would make you able and want to forgive them? And what would need shifting if you don't feel ready for that yet? What would need to shift about you in order for you to feel ready? And I think the instinct there is to say, well, the other person would need to do this. The other person would need to do that. Assume in this imaginary scenario, the best possible apology you could imagine from that person, um, from the person that's in your mind. But what, what would it take for you to forgive that person? And holding all of this in your mind, this this imaginary or maybe not so imaginary situation. I have one in my mind. I hope you can all grab hold of something as well. I want to ask the the question that I've posed on the sheets for us today. What's the impact of granting or withholding forgiveness? What's the impact on, on us of granting or withholding that forgiveness? How does that act of granting forgiveness change us as human beings? What does it say about us to be able to grant forgiveness? Uh, When can we, when can't we? Um, and, and really, what does it indicate about our character? And I'm interested in this because I, I find the entire 
high holiday experience more compelling when I think of it as a way of doing uh, kind of personality work, right? Thinking, assessing, where am I? Where have I been? Where do I want to go? Then when I think of it, of it as being about um, specific transgressions or specific mistakes, I want to do that broader soul work with you today. And so that's where we'll focus our attention. To do that, and to, to give you again kind of the lay of the land, I want to start with a Talmudic story and then look at some other sources that pick up on some of the threads in that story. And full disclosure, even though you heard about you heard about some of my other lives, you heard about my work with Safaria and you heard about um, my work at Princeton, but I think the, the most core work to my identity uh, is, is the work that I do as a teacher of Talmud. So I chose this Talmudic story knowing that it is uh, a little messy, a little imperfect, doesn't have the perfect moral that maybe we would like. That's why I like stories in the Talmud, because I think they're always messy and imperfect. And in that way, they kind of mirror real life. You'll let me know what you think. So I'm going to share my screen. And also, I'll put the, I'll put the sources in the chat. So if you want to access those independently, you can. And I'm going to share my screen now. You'll notice that, or maybe you'll notice that uh, my sources are shared as a Safari source sheet. What can I say? Professional hazard. But if you're, uh, if you're used to, to learning on Safari, that's great. If not, welcome. Welcome to my virtual Beit Midrash space. Um, and I, I, I'm not here to speak about Safari today, but I enjoy the flexibility that it gives me. And you'll, you'll see maybe a little bit of that as we go through. So here's the story in the Talmud. And again, these, the questions that, that we're thinking about are these questions of who, who is the person who forgives? What does it mean to be a forgiver? What does that look like? And what does that feel like? So we'll try not to get distracted by some of the other details in the story, either, even though those are fun too. Here's the story. It begins with a little moral. So you're going to get the moral of the story here at the beginning and then again at the end. And that's fun because it means you can track your reactions to this moral before you hear the story and see if they shift at all after you hear the story. Here's the moral of the story. The sages further taught in praise of the reed. Okay, that's weird. We'll leave that aside for a second. A person should always be soft like a reed and they should not be stiff like a cedar. That's the moral of the story. It's like a spoiler alert. When we get to the end, you'll see that was always meant to be the moral of the story. Be soft, be pliable like a reed. Don't be stiff like a cedar. It's an interesting moral because I would say that elsewhere in Jewish texts, cedars actually have a pretty good reputation. To be like a cedar tree, and in other contexts, uh, the righteous are compared to cedar trees. To be a cedar tree is to be strong, to be well-rooted, um, to be kind of firm in your convictions. But here, the framing of the story is you should be like a reed and not like a cedar. And again, we'll circle back to that idea at the end. An incident occurred in which Rabbi Elazar, son of Rabbi Shimon, came from Migdal Gador from his rabbi's house, and he was riding on a donkey and strolling on the bank of the river. Here's the setup. Here's the first character that you meet. Uh, you have a rabbi. He's, he's um, riding and strolling. I find that somehow more striking, actually, in the English. Um, in the Hebrew, he's Rahuv al He's riding on his donkey. So I'm going to say that maybe the, the donkey is doing the strolling, but he is riding his donkey at a strolling pace. How's that? Um, and and this is uh, this is where he is. He's coming. 
he's coming from this place, from his teacher's house, and he's very happy. And his head was swollen with pride because he had studied much Torah. The Hebrew is da'ato gasa'alav. His, his ego is inflated. Literally, gasa means large or inflated. So pausing for a second, what do we think about this, this rabbi's state of mind? What's your impression of this person? Do you think he's likely, do you think he's set up in the, in the literary framing here? Is he set up to be the person who's going to um, be asking for forgiveness or is going to be um, asked for forgiveness? I feel like I said that. No, I said that right. You know, who do you think he's going to be? The, the one with the need to be forgiven or the one who's going to be forgiven? Anyone have a literary feeling about this? You can put your thoughts in the chat. I would say he's a kind of sympathetic character um, for like up into a point, up into a point, right? He's, he's happy, he's strolling, he's riding his donkey, fine. And then we get to this part where his head is swollen with pride. And interestingly, what he's feeling prideful about is that he's studied so much Torah. Anyone want to weigh in with a guess before we get to the spoilers? No takers. Okay, I'm going on. You can also ask questions. Um, he happens upon an exceedingly ugly person who said to him, greetings to you, my rabbi. So this person, very ugly person, said, shalom alecha rabbi, and Rabbi Elazar did not respond to him. No response. Amarlo, reika, kamen mechuaro to haish. And and he, so he doesn't respond in the, in the greeting, but he does say to him, Reka, you empty, worthless person, how ugly you are. And Karen's already on to something. Maybe his pride will need forgiveness from others. It's, it's probably not a great state of mind to be in um, if you're going to kind of deal, deal the most kindly with other people, right? Let's say it that way, because he's already a little bit uh, got an inflated ego, we could say that his happiness is a kind of smugness. And smugness maybe doesn't put us in the best frame of mind to respond to other people. So he doesn't respond directly to the greeting. Instead, he says, wow, you're so ugly. <laughs> you're so ugly. Um, and then he goes on, uh, maybe everyone in your city is as ugly as you are. Okay, now we're sure that Rabbi Elazar needs to ask for forgiveness, right? This is not a nice thing to say. You're, you're so ugly. Um, I don't even know. I think that when I read this story, you can tell me if this resonates for you. When I read the story, I think, well, who does that? That's what my kids would say. Who does that? Who speaks that way? Nobody would speak that way. Who just says you're so ugly? Um, yeah, Karen says, what Torah was he studying, right? Like who even speaks that way? That seems very, very intense. Um, and the what Torah was he studying comment, I really like that because I think that to just see somebody you don't know, and I, I assume they don't know each other, and respond just to those, those external looks, there's really no sense of Tselem Elohim here. There's really no sense of recognizing the other person's humanity, just a kind of knee-jerk response to the way the person looks. And I will uh, tell you without getting totally sidetracked by this, that some scholars read this as a, as a racist remark, as a racist slur because right to say to someone oh you're really ugly maybe everyone where you live right everyone where you come from looks like you and is ugly like you and that that really has a kind of overtone of being something that is yes focusing on someone's outside rather than their inside thank you from the comments and uh and just something that is um, a kind of cruelty that we maybe wouldn't expect from someone who just presumably spent some time studying Torah. 
So that's what he says to this person. And now we've got uh, Rabbi Elazar definitely set up as the person who needs to ask for forgiveness for having done this thing. And if you've experienced uh, being angry, if you've experienced being the one who's on the verge of being the one who needs to apologize, but you don't know that yet, there usually has to be something. There has to be some switch that flips, something that makes you feel, oh, I did something wrong. Actually, I'm going to need to apologize. So here's the switch for, for Rabbi Elazar. Um, the man says to him, in response to this, to this insult, any um, yodea, I don't know. I'm not sure. Is everyone as ugly as I am? I don't know. You should go tell the artist who made me. How ugly is this thing that you have made? You should go tell my creator that creator, you made something really, really ugly. That's Rabbi Elazar's aha moment. And Bob wrote in the chat that Rabbi Elazar might have some personality stress. So he's, he's comfortable with text and not comfortable with other people being on the spectrum. I really love that insight. Um, I think that we, we all know people like that, right? Who are sort of more comfortable or they, they are comfortable. They are competent in their own milieu. And then you kind of remove them to a different context and all of a sudden they're awkward. Uh, they seem unkind. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Certainly the man is, is insulted. He's really taken aback. And he says, basically, go tell God, you think I'm so ugly? Go tell God. Go tell God how ugly this thing is that he made, which I think in the in that the deeper context of the story, and I don't know that the that the man that the ugly person knew this, uh, but in the in the, what we know about the story that this is a person who's just come from studying Torah, that's got a sting, right? If you are that person who just spent all your time studying Torah, and what you feel so good about is your Torah, your connection to all that's godly, and now you're finding out. You didn't just insult another person. That person is actually one of God's creations or brought back to that Selim Elohim recognition. Oh, wait, <laughs> this person was also created by God. When I insult them, I'm really insulting the, the, the divine spark within them. I'm insulting creation. And Rabbi Elazar, in fact, has his aha moment here. And so... The Talmud records this. He, he recognized, he realized, um, yeah, insulting Hashem, definitely. When Rabbi Elazar realized that he had sinned, he descended from his donkey and prostrated himself before him. And notice that that physical move, it's not just a mental come down, it's echoed in the physical world. He was, remember, riding and strolling on his donkey. He was up high. The, the other person, I assume, was walking, was below him, physically below him. And now Rabbi Elazar, realizing that he's done something wrong, very wrong, lowers himself even beneath the level of this person and, and prostrates himself, and he's going to apologize. I have sinned against you. Forgive me. That's his apology. I have sinned. I've done something wrong. Please forgive me. Um, it's very, the, the words are, are evocative of, of a lot of the prayers of the high holiday season. Um, he says... Um, wait, I want to find it in the Hebrew. Um, he says he knew about himself that he sinned, and he says, um, not, right? Please, please forgive me. That word for forgiveness, please forgive me. What do we think about his apology? On the scale of apologies, how are you going to rate this apology? We've all been apologized to, we've all had the experience of kind of, um, 
you know, ranking uh, celebrities' apologies after they do terrible things and they go on TV or whatever and apologize. What do you think about this apology? Would you accept his apology? I'll let you think about it for a second, even if you don't put a response in the chat. Bob says he hasn't really heard what the man said, Sam. Uh, interesting. He needs to apologize both to the man and to Hashem. That's interesting. I like the, I like the question that I, that I hear you raising about, did he really hear what the person said? On the one hand, I'd say, it's a great apology. It's the kind of apology I would for sure want. Yes, you're 100% right. I'm 100% wrong, and I apologize. But if you've ever gotten that kind of apology, you know that actually sometimes it feels like a cop-out. Just saying, oh yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. Okay, that's nice, but did you act, do you actually understand what it is that you did wrong to me, right? Not in the abstract. Like, yeah, it's bad to say that people are ugly. It's bad to not return people's greetings. But my, my particular source of, of um, offense here, I think, is what this man is saying, right? The thing that I'm really offended about is that you not only insulted me, but you showed that, as many people are saying in the chat, you showed that you don't really care about God even. And, and I, I want you to, to take that into account, and I want you to really apologize for that. Um, right? It, Rabbi Elazar is a little bit self-centered, perhaps. He's really focused on himself. Um, he's focused on how he feels. First, he felt happy. Now he feels apologetic, and he wants to just move on and put it behind him. So... Maybe for all of these reasons, and maybe for other reasons besides, um, hard to know. We don't know a lot about the people involved. Um, the man says, no, I'm not going to forgive you until you go to the craftsman who made me and say, how ugly is the vessel you made? He walked behind the man until they reached Rebbe Lazar's city. So now they're traveling together. And you have this word, uh, mitayel again, to, to kind of stroll Mitayel acharacha, right? That he's uh, he's strolling after him, um, and uh, or in this case, Mitayel acharaf, he's strolling after him until they get to his city, and all the people in the city come out and they say shalom alecha, Rabbi, Rabbi Mori, Mori, right? They they greet him as a scholar, as a teacher, and the man, the the ugly man, um, the offended man, says lemiatem korim Rabbi. Who are, or, sorry, let me ask him, Kareem, Rebbe, Rebbe, who are you saying? What's all this rabbi, rabbi? Who are you talking to? And they say to the ugly man, who we now find out is, is in front, we're talking to the person who's trailing behind you. This sounds like a, like a Yiddish joke that my grandmother would have told. Right? If this one's a rabbi, let's not have a lot of those hanging around our camp. Uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't want this one. And of course, you know, they they need to know why, what happens. He tells the story. And the people say to him, They say, okay, even so, you should really forgive him because he is an Adam Gadol Batorah. He's a I can translate all the words, and I think it's uh, it's interesting how you would want to put those together. He's a person who is great in Torah. Um, what does the Steinsalt English translation say here? Um, he's a great Torah scholar. Okay, that's interesting, but it doesn't actually use the word Talmid Chacham, which is how I would refer to the Torah scholar if I were writing the Talmud. I would say this is just a person, but he's a person who has a lot of Torah. And it's interesting for me to look at Bob's question in the chat, whether the man he called ugly is another Jew or a non-Jew, 
I don't know. And I think that that's that, that idea of knowing a lot of Torah might land differently depending on, um, right. We don't know what this person's orientation towards Torah is like, he knows a lot of Torah. Really? Okay, great. Like, do I find that impressive or do I not find that impressive? Um, I don't know. I don't know how that landed with this person, um, except to say that he responds, for your sake, I forgive him. Not for the sake of the Torah, not because I'm so awed by him, uh, which is interesting, um, but, uh, but, but uh, for your sake, I will forgive him. Ubilvad um, As long as he doesn't, like, just don't do it again essentially, is what he says, right? As long as, this per- as, long as Rabbi Lazar commits to not doing this again, I will, um, I will forgive him for your sake. And presumably, that's where the matter ends. That's the end of the narrative of this story. Um, Barbara asks, why would Jewishness even matter? I don't know if it matters, actually, Jewishness per se, but I think it's interesting to think about how I guess, from both perspectives, how were the people of the city expecting this argument to be received? Like, how would you take it if someone said to you, listen, you really should give this person a pass. They are a great Torah scholar. Would you say, oh, that's a really compelling argument. I feel more inclined to forgive somebody who's a great Torah scholar. Or would you say, that's nice, but the person insulted me. I don't really care how much Torah they know. Um, And I think you're right, Barbara, that doesn't necessarily hinge on Jewishness. It just hinges on how you think about Torah, and that that could be a question of religion, but I think there's a lot of other factors that would also come into play there um, and be important. So we have a story of an offense, an encounter, an offense, an apology, a failed apology, I would say, um, since it isn't the apology that ultimately um, brings about the forgiveness. And then we have a forgiveness. And now here we're going to get the moral again, or now you can read it as the punchline. Um, so immediately Rabbi Elazar, son of Rabbi Shimon, entered the study hall and taught. And here it is again. A person should always be soft like a reed and should not be hard like a cedar. Now you get the follow-up to the punchline, the practical application of the moral of the story which doesn't happen everywhere, but does sometimes happen in the Talmud, which is also concerned with law. We reward the reed for its quality of softness by having it be the instrument for the writing of Torah, Tfilin, and Mezuzah. All of these mitzvot, all of these commandments can be carried out by means of the reed, that's the thing that you use to dip in the ink to write the script for all of these things. And it, it traces back in this kind of folk etymology, um, it traces back to this idea that it is good to be soft like a reed and bad to be hard like a cedar, good to be soft like a reed. So now we can ask again, um, what, what is it about being like a reed? What is it about being soft, about being pliable, that is such a positive. And first, I think we need to think about who is Rach Kakane in this story? Which character would you identify with this trait? It's definitely not, I think, Rabbi Elazar. Um, we don't see him being yielding in that way. Um, and we don't see him, we don't see him responding to an apology because he's not the one who gets apologized to. It's also 
I don't think, uh, not the not the other man. He's not soft and yielding, um, unless you want to argue. Well, like after a time, he he yields, he forgives. Um, but if you would, you know, I think overall we gave kind of like a thumbs down to Rabbi Elazar's apology. Um, I wouldn't grade the forgiveness very much higher than I would grade the apology. I would call that kind of a, a grudging forgiveness. Like, okay, I forgive you, but not because of anything that you did, just because all these people asked me, and you have to promise never to do it again. It's not the most inspiring. I would say neither one of them um, inspires a lot of admiration in terms of their character traits. And so it seems like maybe the, maybe the, the moral of the story is one that's drawn out of, of a lack that none of these characters typify that Rach Kikane piece. And in fact, we're being invited. Oh, thank you. So Rabbi, I appreciate that comment. The Rach Kikane is the reader. I was just going to say that I think that we're being invited um, to, to reimagine this story, I would say, right? To, to reread the story through the lens of imagination. What if, what if somebody had been soft or what's the softness that that we would imagine ourselves taking on if we were in this story, right? We can bring that element of softness. Um, are there any other questions or comments before we go on? I'm catching up in the chat. Um, Bob brought up the topic of sexual abuse. Um, I, I think that um, this is a good space to acknowledge that forgiveness can be really complicated. Even the story in the Talmud, being called ugly, especially if it's in fact got a racial tinge to it, that is not a simple thing to forgive. Um, and the idea of abuse or something that's you know um, kind of long term in that way, I don't want to. I don't want anyone to read this class as an argument saying that it's always appropriate to forgive or that a person always has to forgive. I'm interested in when we choose to forgive and the impact that it has in our soul. Um, but I, I fundamentally don't know the answer to your question, Bob, in terms of um, what the right shuva is in that situation. Um, and, uh, and Bob also says, the man who was insulted reminds you of the late John Lewis. That's interesting. Any other questions or comments or thoughts about what it means to be soft like a reed before we continue? In case you're not a good multitasker and you didn't want to type while I was talking. Okay, feel free to stop me. Again, feel free to put those questions and comments into the chat. I think this story does a better job um, rather than describing what it is to be rach kaneh, to be soft in that way, kind of does a better job of describing the opposite, that desire to harden and that stubbornness that we sometimes feel when, when we're angry or when we're hurt, when someone has done something wrong. Um, it it sounds in the story, I think it, it sounds a little juvenile, or there's a way of reducing this story to something very juvenile. Like literally one person stopped someone else on the street and was like, hey, you're really ugly. Um, and maybe everyone else you are friends with is ugly too. And then, you know, the person says back, well, you know, well, if I'm ugly, you know, you should go tell God, right? Like, this is something like kind of juvenile that the argument. Um, and I think when, when I always think about that instinct to kind of harden up and to be stubborn and to say, no, I don't want to forgive you, that also feels, um, it feels right sometimes, but also like maybe not, not the better angels of my nature, like a more juvenile move sometimes. But that's really what this story makes us feel is that, that hardness and then contrasted with that softness. So what is it about forgiveness? What is it about the softness that's really being praised in this story? Um, what, what, 
would it have felt like, again, if the reader is the one who's Rach Kekane, how can we reread this story and reimagine a situation with the necessary softness? What are those personality traits? The Jewish thinker who maybe it can be credited with putting the whole repentance and forgiveness process on the map, as it were. Um, the person who kind of uh, put it out there into the world, even though far from the only important philosopher to write about it, is the Rambam, is Maimonides. And so I felt that we couldn't talk about this subject without, without looking at, uh, at what he has to say. He has a lot of rules for how you're going to repent. And um, I think that uh, for some people, that's really helpful and comforting because if you are the kind of person who likes to have a to-do list and know what's next on your to-do list, then you want to know exactly how the path is laid out. How do you do chuba? How do you go through this repentance process? But it can also be a little daunting if you feel like, well, I don't exactly fit in to the Rambam's model. Um, so I'm, I'm isolating this from the rest of what he says about repentance and just talking specifically about forgiveness. Here's what Maimonides writes. It's forbidden for a person to be, the translation here, which I took from Safari, says ill-natured, but I would correct that and say cruel. Achzari really means cruel. It's forbidden for a person to be cruel, and not to be forgiving, not to be appeased. Rather, that person should be, any person should be, easily appeased, slow to anger. And when someone requests, uh, when a sinner implores that person for pardon, when someone requests forgiveness from you, you should grant it wholeheartedly, belev shalem, and with a willing soul. I would say that, although the Rambam doesn't say this, um, maybe this is kind of definitional to what it means. Maybe you could get into this as a mental image for what it looks like to be rach kakane, to have that kind of softness and pliability about you to have that built into your personality, what would that look like? What it would look like is you don't get angry too easily. And when you do, and someone asks you for forgiveness, you grant it willingly. Not like the kind of forgiveness we saw granted in the story. That was a very grudging kind of forgiveness. Okay, fine, I forgive you, but not for your sake, just for their sake, and you've got to promise never to do it again. Nope, this is a very wholehearted forgiveness that's being described. And Although Maimonides, uh, this is not where Maimonides discusses personality traits. This is where he's discussing repentance. He has another book for that. Um, long, longer story than we have time for today. Um, but I think that Maimonides is telling us something about the personality trait involved in being forgiving by saying, don't be someone who's cruel. Someone who forgives is whatever you want to say the opposite of cruel is. It's definitely... Um, not holding a grudge. And, but I think it's, it's not just the action, it's not just the, the verb of not holding a grudge. Who you are as a person in that moment is someone who is not cruel, someone who's kind, someone who's compassionate. And I think it actually fits into the larger context of Maimonides' laws of repentance, not just in the sense that, yeah, part of repentance is to apologize to someone and then they have to forgive, but actually the act of forgiving itself can be a kind of repentance for the person forgiven. Not because you did something wrong by getting angry necessarily. Maimonides is mostly okay with anger um, when it's justified. And of course, most of the time when we get angry, we would say it is justified, so we'd be fine. Um, he's mostly okay with anger. But 
we want to be that person, at least sometimes, at least in some situations, we want to be that person who doesn't hold a grudge. We want to be that person who has a forgiving nature. I think I would even say that it, um, it sounds like it feels better to be soft and pliable like a reed. If I think about what that would feel like inside my body, I prefer that image over the hard like a cedar image. We want to be that person. Um, and, and so it's a form of repentance, not in the form of apologizing for something that we've done wrong, but it's a form of repentance in terms of the self-work that we do to make ourselves better and to improve ourselves. Um, we can do that work in part by not, not stiffening, not getting hard and holding on to grudges, um, but actually forgiving. Lizzie says, if you can't forgive someone, maybe the person who's done wrong has to accept the fact they won't be forgiven and find peace in that. I, I appreciate that comment a lot because I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning about the, the complicated nature of relationships once you actually get into real life. Um, you wronged me and I should forgive you, but if I can't forgive you, then maybe you need to forgive me for not being able to forgive you. Something like that, right? I, I think, I mean, it, it sounds a little silly when you spell it out that way, but I think that that's the nature of life. It really does get that complicated sometimes. And um, and maybe what I would say to that, Lizzie, is that, yeah, there, there has to be someone letting go, someone um, relenting and being that soft person if you're not going to stay in that harsh kind of conflict place all the time. Uh, Karen asks whether there's an unforgivable situation, act, etc. cetera. Um, I'll say the same thing I said about the, the abuse piece. Maybe. Oh, okay. Bob, and Bob went there. Um, would all people forgive Adolf Hitler? So it's, <laughs> I should have, I should have imagined that any, any convening such as this, you wouldn't let me get away with anything. Um, I, I thought about starting this class. I almost started this class with a quote or a pair of quotes about whether or not one should forgive the Nazis. Um, if you remind me, I'll circle back to that at the end. Um, I will just say briefly, the reason I didn't is because most of us, most of the time, thank God, are not in that situation. And I'm interested in us doing the, the hard work of the day-to-day slights and the injuries and the, the difficulties with relationships. Um, and those bigger questions, which hopefully are once in a lifetime or not even happening to us, God willing, right? Like I, I want to kind of bracket those and not use that as an excuse to not do that hard interpersonal work. Um, and as Zita asked, I would like to know your take on the situation when a person tells the other, I forgive you since you don't know any better. It sounds insulting when you've not even realized that you've wronged the person to begin with. I agree. I think that part of the Talmudic story is about what an apology looks like. Maybe, I don't know if your parents told you this kind of dumb joke, but my parents used to say, like, when they would say, you know, apologize to your sister, right? Um, no, you're supposed to say, you know, I'm sorry for telling my sister she's stupid. And then you say, I'm sorry, my sister is stupid. Right. So like that's that's no, that's the apology you're not supposed to give. And I think that this this falls into that category also, right? That's not a good apology. Again, I'd put the I'd put the man in the story, his apology also into that not such a good apology category. And the Rambam doesn't tell us, um, he doesn't tell us how good the apology has to be. And again, I think that's because he's relating here to the the chuva the repentance process, and that part of that process that we're all going to go through, hopefully, is learning to forgive. So again, I would say, for the purposes of this halacha, for the purposes of this law, I'm okay with you assuming the perfect, the ideal, um, the optimal apology, and then think about, well, what's, what's my optimal response? What's the best way that I could possibly 
respond. Um, and yes, Bob has another example about people who died from COVID-19. There are a lot of extreme examples in life. There really are. But I want to dive into Maimonides a little bit further um, because one of the awesome things about the work of Maimonides, um, awesome is one word for it, um, I'm not sure if he experienced it this way, was that he wrote an entire massive work, 14 volumes, without any footnotes. No one would ever get away with that today. He didn't put any footnotes in. And so when Maimonides says a person's not allowed to do this because um, to, to not forgive would be to be cruel or, you know, don't be cruel, he never says where he gets that from. Now, at this point, we're kind of okay saying, okay, Maimonides is like kind of an authority. He's a big name, right? He's got a big name. Um, it's okay for him to say something on his own authority. But by the Rambam's own admission, he was working off of earlier sources. And so one of the ways that we can understand more about what Maimonides is really saying sometimes is to delve into his sources. There's an entire genre of literature that does this. Um, we sometimes call them the Nosei Kelim, the, the kind of... Um, those that followed in Maimonides' footsteps and interpret his words. And that is not what I'm going to uh, look at with you today, um, although that is a, an extensive literature. I wanted to go deeper by looking at the words of a rabbi named Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner, relatively modern source. He died in 1980. Um, what's interesting about, about his writings and about this source is that Everything he writes is kind of an interesting mashup of intense textual analysis, like really you could sit and study it for hours, um, and a Hasidic emotional core, and that reflects his own biography. I hope you'll see what I mean as we go through this. It's layers upon layers, and I'm going to um, limit and, and kind of extract as much as I can. So I'm mostly going to summarize, but pieces of the text are here as well if you want to, if you want to see what that looks like. So Rav Hunter is interested in thinking about what, what was Maimonides thinking, right? What was Maimonides' source? What does he mean and what's he getting at when he says that it would be cruel to not forgive? Again, my interest is if, if you're cruel when you don't forgive, who are you when you do forgive? Okay, we'll get to that. Um, and it turns out that there is a Mishnah, so a legal source, in a part of the Talmud that discusses civil law that... Um, is maybe in some sense the easiest of laws to relate to. It's, it's nothing like Bob's cases here about, you know, you died from COVID and, you know, God forbid, and someone maybe could have presented it. Here's like a very straightforward case. Somebody breaks your arm. Somebody crashes into your car. Somebody burns down your house. God forbid. Um, somebody does something terrible to you. What happens next? And this part of the Mishnah goes through in some detail. Here's what happens next from a legal point of view you have to pay restitution. You have to make up what they've lost. You have to pay both um, physical damage and psychological damage. And there's an entire chapter, I mean, there's more than that, but this particular chapter of mission really goes through how exactly you would calculate what those damages are. And at the very end of that chapter of Mishnah, so the Mishnah in Baba Kama teaches that even after you pay restitution to someone else, you're not forgiven. It's not like wiped off your slate until you apologize. So I've paid you all these different forms of damage. I'm still going to have to ask for forgiveness. And to not ask for forgiveness, the Mishnah said, or sorry, to not grant forgiveness would be cruel. And the, the way that the, that the Talmud extracts this is from a story about Abraham, um, which um, as, a, as a quick 
reminder, um, we're entering the season where you get to tell Abraham and Sarah's stories. Um, the details are not particularly important here, but just to, to put yourself into a, a different mindset of being insulted, there's a famous episode in Abraham and Sarah's lives together where they go and they live elsewhere. And for reasons that are not totally clear, Abraham lies and tells the king that his wife, Sarah, is actually his sister, which I think we can all agree was a bad idea from day one. But, um, and, it, and it doesn't go well. Um, the king decides that maybe he would like to have Sarah for his wife. He takes Sarah into his, uh, into his palace. And uh, at that point, God intervenes. And the king and his, his, uh, his court are punished. And at this point, all is revealed. There's apologies all around. The king returns Sarah to Abraham and even pays Abraham money. And now we're kind of caught up in the story to where the Mishnah finds us. So this is the equivalent of you've done damage, but you've made restitution. You've, you've, you've apologized and you've paid. So you're like done. At that point in the story, Abraham prays for mercy for the king and his court. He prays that all the damage that was done should be reversed. He prays that everything will be okay. And it seems, in the reading of Rav Hutner at least, um, it seems like that act of, of asking for mercy is kind of the above and beyond. That's the sign that you've really, that it's really been a full acceptance of the apology. Everything, this is a, this is a successful apology case. You apologized and I've forgiven you and I'm now ready to not just, um, you know, we have this phrase in English, forgive and forget. Whoever forgives and forgets. I don't even know where that phrase comes from. Um, but uh, I think the people that you, you have to forgive are the people you most remember. But okay, you forgive and you don't forget. Instead, now that you've forgiven this person, you're in a whole new state of the relationship and you pray for that person. Um, Rabbi Hutner says, Maimonides mentions prayer, but it's just an example of showing mercy for the person that you forgave. It's about behaving with mercy after forgiving. And it's part of this set of laws because the one who did the damage, like, they're done. They paid you, they apologized, they're done. But because they apologized to you and you were in that position of power, you were the grantor of forgiveness. You were the divine in this setup. You were the person they needed to apologize to. You were the only one who could make this right at this point. Again, assume the perfect apology. You're the only one who can make this right now by granting forgiveness. You may be soft like a reed, but it's not a... It's not a weak kind of softness. It's a kind of softness that comes with a lot of strength and a lot of power. You're in the position to grant that forgiveness, and you, in fact, do grant that forgiveness. And now you're kind of linked to that person. Um, you, can, you can pray for them. You can hope for the best in their lives. Um, I think Bob gave an example of deciding whether to forgive somebody, um, right? Uh, that's, you know, a, a political example in, in the chat. But um, I think we all might have this moment of like, do you forgive somebody or do you not forgive somebody? And then, and then that feels like the most important decision. But once you get past that, it's not that you're done. You're not done with the relationship. There's a next step and maybe a next step after that. Refitner takes it one step further. Um, he goes on to say a, a kind of a version of what some of you have said in the chat. How can you tell me that I'm supposed to forgive somebody? Where does that even come from? Why, why is that something that I'm supposed to do? We know that there are a lot of different obligations in Judaism. 
they stem from different kinds of responsibilities. They stem from different kinds of feelings of obligation. Where does this one come from? And this one's a little bit complicated. Um, I'll, read, I'll read just a few of his words here. Um, he says, Yesh hevdel atzum bein sicha ubein livun habeged. This maybe also relates to some of the comments. There's a big difference between forgiveness and a wiping clean of the slate, or what he says here is a, um, like, washing out the stain. And, and in the rest of the essay, he goes really deep with this metaphor, right? Like, if you wash the clothes once, you take the stained clothing, you put it in the washing machine, you take it out. It's, like, not gross anymore, but you still see the stain on it. And if you want to get the stain off, you're going to have to really work at it, and that's going to take some time. So there's a big difference, he says, between those two things. And when it comes to God, when it comes to imagining a divine power that is all-knowing and all-seeing and can be everywhere and see everything, you're going to have to keep doing that washing process. You're going to have to keep working on yourself. But we want, we want the apology to be kind of the end of the road here and not the beginning of a process. We want the apology to feel like it's full on the part of the apologizer and can be fully received on the part of the forgiver, the person receiving the apology. And Rav Hutner defines this as an act of chesed, an act of loving kindness, to grant that forgiveness. Sometimes when we do acts of chesed, when we perform acts of loving kindness, the rabbinic system defines that as a way in which we are actually imitating God. An imitatio day kind of moment, God is forgiving, God is compassionate, we, we speak about these attributes of the divine when we, when we pray on the high holidays. And, and so we are, we are asked to emulate that. And, and it's this mitzvah of chesed that comes from or that, that um, is defined by emulating God's ways in some way. But this essay argues that actually when it comes to forgiveness, we're asked to go beyond what God does. Our obligation to chesed is not about um, just, uh, just the kind of forgiveness that God does, because God, let's be honest, if you, if you set it up in this hierarchical manner where there's an all-knowing, all-powerful God who can know everything about you, so God's going to be keeping tabs on you for quite some time. And that's not how we want it to work with apologies. We want it to be, um, again, a full apology, fully accepted, and then we move on. And this apology, he says, is actually the erasure. The last line there. This kind of chesed is not found in God's behavior. This is a chesed, this is a kind of loving kindness that only human beings can grant to other human beings. Something only we can do for each other. Maybe because, this is me, this is not Rabbi Hutner, but uh, maybe because we're flawed like that. And so only we can relate in that way to the other flawed human being. Yeah, you really messed up. Um, and I really feel that. And I was hurt by that, but I'm going to forgive you. And I also know that I need to ask for forgiveness from somebody else. I think as Bob said, I shouldn't be judging how authentic the apology is because we're not in that same judging position um, as, as an all-knowing, all-seeing kind of deity. Um, I think that we are, yeah, maybe you, you can judge how the apology feels to you, but you can't ever know what's inside someone else's mind, really. And yeah, 
we're exercising our forgiveness muscles. I really like, or our forgiving muscles. I really like that. I think I'll, I'll take that in and use it again. Um, we have a muscle that allows us to forgive. And every time we do that, it's an act of chesed. We usually put acts of chesed, um, bundle them together with things like visiting the sick, providing food for people when they're in need, um, those kinds of acts. What Rabbi Huttner is arguing is that every time you forgive somebody, actual real forgiveness, okay, bracketing all the questions about what the apology was like, and yes, I do think they have to deserve it, and all those things, when you actually really forgive someone, that is an act of chesed. And yes, I think there's also an aspect of rachmanut, of, of mercy and compassion, and all of that, but we're really doing something that God doesn't do, that, that goes beyond that. And as a final source, I want to circle back to this question of God, um, because famously, uh, one of the things that God does, we imagine, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when I say we imagine, I mean that there's a lot of liturgical um, energy around setting up what this looks like, especially on Yom Kippur. We, we have this whole narrative about how God is you know, we're, we're asking God to forgive us. We're asking God to forgive us. Then God forgives us. Um, so there's a story in the Talmud in Brachot about a high priest, um, a high priest named Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, who said, and of course the significance of the high priest, right? the high priest is the one who, who goes in to encounter the divine on Yom Kippur, who enters the Holy of Holies. And he narrates that once he did enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, and he saw a vision of God, God sitting on God's holy throne. And God said, Yishmael b'ni barcheni, Yishmael, my son, give me a blessing. And I, Yishmael, said to him, may it be your will, that your mercy overtake your anger, and may, again, may your, may your mercy, may your kindness um, dominate your attributes. And may you uh, act with mercy towards, uh, towards everyone, right? Towards all of creation. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the prayer. And may you judge them, not according to the strict letter of the law. Again, may you be compassionate, may you be mercy. And God nods God's head. God essentially agrees to that blessing, accepts that blessing. Which tells me that even for God, forgiveness might not always be that easy. Even for God, right? In this story, God, God has to sort of pray or accept a prayer for God to be forgiving. Because it's not easy. It's not easy for the divine. It's not easy for us. There's a kind of softness that you have to embrace, Again, you also need to be set up for success by the other person. You need to be in a position where you feel like you can forgive. And you need to be able to do that self-work of extending that chesed to another person. I do think it is, of course, much more complicated when you're dealing with situations of abuse, of crimes, crimes against humanity. I don't want to seem to be sidelining those questions entirely. Um, But again, I think it's always a choice to some degree of how we respond even to the really terrible things that happen in our lives. Um, and, uh, and, and by way of circling back to that, I'll say that uh, if, you want, if you want kind of food for thought or you need something else to, to do before the high holidays, because I understand this is one of the last classes in the series, um, 
there is a movie that was made um, some number of years ago. I showed it to my students at Princeton, so that was already about 10 years ago. Um, and I believe it's called Forgiving Dr. Mengele. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's, um, it's made by or about a Holocaust survivor. Uh, she survived Dr. Mengele's experiments on twins. Um, and she, uh, she, forgives, she forgives Dr. Mengele. She forgives the Nazis. She does it publicly. She reads a letter out loud. Uh, in Auschwitz and is filmed doing so um, and uh, has a lot to say about why she makes that choice to forgive. Um, you can also read things by, by, other, uh, by other writers and other Holocaust survivors, including Elie Wiesel, who famously, Allah Shalom, um, of blessed memory, who famously said that he did not want to forgive the Nazis. And I, again, thought about starting the class this way, did not because... Um, because I think it is, like I said, a little bit of a distraction from that hard work that we really have to do. Um, again, interpersonally in, in, in the, the quote unquote little things, which sometimes loom so large in our lives. And I gave you a, a small prayer at the end here, um, a bedtime meditation or prayer that takes upon the individual, that responsibility for forgiving. That's sort of an, an exercise. Um, who said, right, your, your forgiveness muscle, your forgiving muscles, it's kind of a way of exercising your forgiving muscles every night before you go to bed. It may feel right to you. It may feel good. It may feel wrong or like you're not there. It may feel differently different days, but I'm, I'm putting it out there as, as a spiritual practice. I'm putting it out there as a suggestion because as the previous source suggests, um, in what number did I give it? Source number five, um, Yom Kippur is conceived of as a day of joy in the rabbinic tradition, which is maybe not how we always think about it. Um, it's conceived of as a day of joy because it has these elements of forgiveness and pardon. And I think that some of you in the comments raised issues about, um, you know, we might not always feel good about forgiving because someone does me really terrible because there was a loss of life because we feel really justified. I think all of that is valid, but think for a second about how good it sometimes does feel to forgive in that moment when you, you did get that really satisfying apology, you do feel like you can forgive and you do feel like you can move on with the relationship. It's actually a great feeling. And that's something that we're meant to be celebrating on Yom Kippur. And yes, we can exercise that forgiveness muscle by, um, by practicing, right? The same way you exercise any muscle. Um, and so I left you and leave you with this, with this prayer at the end. Um, my, my blessing to all of us, thinking about this and thinking about the year ahead, is that we all find the capacity to do some amount of forgiving, whatever feels right, to forgive ourselves, to forgive each other, um, to forgive maybe even some forgiveness around all that's gone wrong in this past year of 5780. There's so much here, I think, that we'd like to leave behind. Um, so I hope we all find that forgiving capacity. I hope that we're all blessed with the kind of softness and flexibility that allows for forgiveness, that allows us to adapt as circumstances require. We should all be blessed to be to be soft like the reed and to maintain and build relationships. And finally, may we all be blessed to, through these acts of forgiveness, bring more chesed, more loving kindness into a world which so, so badly needs more chesed in it. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.